welcome to Cancer Talk, the podcast that explores the potential of integrative medicine in cancer care. Integrative medicine is an inclusive approach that combines the full resources of conventional medicine with a broad range of lifestyle and complementary approaches to address the multiple needs of those with cancer in body, in mind and in spirit. Each episode of Cancer Talk, oncologist Dr. Penny Kekayoglu and I, Robin Daly of Yes to Life, will be building bridges between conventional medicine and a host of other therapies and practices with the aim of improving the care of people with cancer in the UK. Hello, I'm Penny. I'm a clinical oncologist in the National Health Service and clinical director, and I treat patients with cancer using different modalities, including chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and holistic approaches. I welcome you all to Cancer Talk, and um, I'm looking forward to joining more specialists to talk about integrative medicine. Hello, I'm Robin Daly, founder and chairman of Yes to Life, the UK charity helping people with cancer to learn about and use integrative medicine. Each episode of Cancer Talk, Robin and I will be jointly hosting guest specialists from the world of integrative medicine with the aim of exploring the potential of improving the health of patients through their particular skills and experiences. Great to be back for another Cancer Talk. Hi Robin, great to see you. Yeah, so yet again we've got a fantastic guest. Uh, Dr. Shireen Kassam, and uh, uh, she's been on my radio show before, so I know quite a bit about what she gets up to, but uh, I know you're very keen to get in there and ask some questions. So, uh, Shireen, uh, thanks so much for coming on today, and uh, I wonder if you'd start out by just telling us a little bit about your background so listeners know who you are and what you do. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, so yes, my name is Shireen Kassam and I'm a consultant haematologist at King's College Hospital. Um, but that in recent years has um, become a, a, a part-time role and I fill um, the rest of my time um, doing what I'm increasingly passionate about, which is promoting healthy plant-based nutrition and a lifestyle approach for prevention and treatment of chronic illness. Um, and I do this in a few ways. So initially, um, back in 2018, I founded a community interest company called Plant-Based Health Professionals UK, which provides education and advocacy on healthy plant-based diets for health professionals, um, the public, and ideally policymakers as well. Um, and that led me on to a role at Winchester University, where I work one day a week and offer a, a course for health professionals which is CPD accredited on plant-based nutrition, specifically for incorporation into clinical practice and as a tool for prevention and um, management of, of chronic illness, in, including cancer, of course. Um, and then that sort of led to a kind of natural progression because the, the sort of questions I was getting through our website and um, the inquiries were, well, where can I find a practitioner who, who will support me um, to adopt these healthy lifestyle behaviours, including a plant-based diet? Um, and of course, during this sort of two, three year journey, I'd um, uh, 
developed a, a large network of like-minded individuals. Um, so it felt like the right time, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, to think about um, incorporating um, lifestyle medicine, plant-based nutrition into an actual healthcare service. Um, and I'm sure we'll get to this in a minute, but I co-founded Plant-Based Health Online with my friend and colleague, Dr. Laura Freeman, and we launched earlier this year and offer consultations on an online platform for people who are looking to improve their health um, alongside conventional um, sort of, you know, allopathic medicine, but with a more lifestyle um, approach. Fantastic. So when I spoke to you, that platform was fairly new. How's it going? Yeah, it's good. I'd say slow and steady, but um, it's um, it's a steep learning curve, you know, having a uh, an organisation that needs to sort of generate an income and also provide high quality care. As you know, we're CQC accredited. So, um, you know, it's um, a juggling act, um, but I'm very grateful to work with Laura and she's fabulous and she's amazing with patients. And we've had some some really awesome reviews and things. So it's going well. Thank you. Can I say, Shireen, it's so wonderful to see you here. You are a hematologist and you have made such a great move as well into lifestyle medicine. Um, I would like to know what inspired you to make that change and what this means to you. Yes, thank you for asking. So I guess it started on a, on my own personal journey. I decided to adopt a, a fully plant-based or vegan diet, really for concerns out of the ethics and morality of, of consuming animals when we didn't need to. But that sort of then opened up um, the broad and extensive medical literature to me, which I had to sort of delve into because I wanted to know how to sort of be healthy and eat well um, for myself. It sort of opened up um, the wealth of evidence that supports um, a plant-based diet for prevention and treatment of chronic illness. Um, and so that sort of led me down this journey of educating myself um, and then thinking, well, I can't keep this to myself. I need to really um, share this with friends and colleagues. Um, but of course, it took a while before I gained that confidence and I think at the same time um, in the UK um, uh, I think it was formed back in 2015 if I'm not mistaken the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine sort of arrived on the scene and it introduced me to a whole network of people who were using lifestyle as medicine to improve outcomes for their patients and, and again it's a very evidence-based um, specialty in medicine um, which is sort of fast-growing globally and I sort of so I sort of found myself um, combining that passion of healthy plant-based nutrition um, but also lifestyle medicine um, and, and wanting to really bring that to my patients um, because you'll know as an oncologist as well whenever just dealing with cancer we're dealing with um, a whole range of chronic physical and often mental health um, concerns and for me what's driven me to want to bring this into a clinical practice rather than just keep it about something I do at home um, is the fact that the patients I see with lymphoma um, also have hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes, um, you know, they may have had a heart attack. And, and um, you well know that our treatments are intensive and, yet, and they can be hampered by these underlying chronic conditions. Um, you know, the toxicity increases with additional chronic conditions and, and you know, outcomes are also affected. Um, so despite the fact that sort of hematology doesn't naturally lend itself to a lifestyle approach, my patients 
can definitely um, benefit from that more sort of holistic um, evidence-based lifestyle approach that I hope I'm able to now bring um, something that I wasn't able to do before I, I, I embarked on this journey. It's absolutely great to hear your patient-centric approach. And as you say, you, you see the patient as a, in a holistic model of care, combining the mainstream hematology that you're specializing and, um, and lifestyle medicine, isn't it? Yes, that's correct. I mean, there's no getting away from the fact that people who come to see me with lymphoma, so a cancer of the lymphatic system, certainly need to stick with the, you know, what we call conventional allopathic treatments that are well tried and tested. And, and I'm lucky enough that a lot of the cancers I treat can be, um, you know, successfully managed, if not cured with good, good outcomes. So, you know, that's fortunate. Um, so but but as I say, um, the lifestyle aspects go hand in hand, um, mm -hmm. because we know it's complementary, it's not one or the other but it's using all the tools in the toolkit and I hope I have a bit more to offer now with that approach. So um, you know you're unusual okay in the, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned in having such a broad interest in this way and being so open to integration of other approaches um, you must have been very unusual uh, you know a few years back. Um, have you found the climate amongst your colleagues for uh, being uh, interested in what you're doing over the years? Um, yeah, it's an interesting um, question to think about, really. Um, I think it's been really variable. I mean, I have to say with my immediate colleagues um, at um, King's College Hospital in haematology and then the sort of the wider community, there's two of us in the whole hospital. We have 10,000 staff at King's College Hospital who are actually got the diploma in lifestyle medicine. Now, that doesn't mean that we're the only two that are interested, but a but with the two that have gone that extra step and um, the other colleague is in occupational medicine, which is clearly a, a, a very useful skill to be using lifestyle medicine with. Um, and I think, you know, we're still um, in a mind um, in haematology to be very much sort of chasing the next clinical trial, the next drug, the next targeted agent. And, and of course, we need that. Um, and so I, I find myself with colleagues who are much more interested in exploring those sort of new novel treatments, which on some level to me makes me feel like, you know, um, we're developing all this amazing advanced technological um, treatments, but that's a minority of individuals. Whereas I've, I've started thinking more on a bigger picture and, and um, thinking, you know, how much could be prevented in the, in the first place rather than waiting for that end stage. But that's kind of a personal thought. But where, where I have noticed um, is that because this lifestyle medicine movement has really, really grown in the UK, um, that um, it, it's more sort of been led by the, primary physicians um, and that makes sense you know primary care is ready for a, a different approach um, that really puts prevention at the core um, so I've come you know I've, I've got a network of um, uh, colleagues and, and, and friends and like-minded individuals who really are embedding this in, in clinical practice um, but, it, but it's not necessarily the oncologist so the course I run at Winchester University is mainly GPs and nutritionists and dietitians um, who, who are coming there's the rare specialist but um, sort of secondary care is less well represented um, and plant-based health professionals is a membership organization um, we've got nearly a thousand members and two-thirds are health professionals but the, the commonest specialty is is GP so I do think we've got a bit of work to do in the oncology space and clearly I'm talking to two people who, <laughs> to, who have really realized that and, and trying to change hearts and minds. <laughs> 
I'm interested to hear what what do you actually say to your colleagues in you know I'm sure they come and tell you you know why do you do what you do um you know maybe some people say it's not working what do you answer them yeah gosh that's hard isn't it I mean I you know I stick to the fact that it's an evidence-based approach with absolutely no side effects with everything to gain and it's allowing patients to gain back some control and over their lives when we know we take away every single bit of um, control from them and it's also something that their families can get involved in you know people want to you know they, everyone asks us don't they what can I do what should I eat you know um, can I exercise and everything so you know I'm at least I'm able to give, um, you know, a, an evidence-based, um, consistent message, I, I hope, and, and a bit more than just saying, oh, well, eat a healthy diet or, oh, yeah, exercise every day. You know, you can put it mm -hmm. into these small prescriptions and ask people specifics. So, you know, I mean, I just relay that to my, my colleagues and uh, hopefully the patients <laughs> will eventually <laughs> be back as it being a benefit to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, there are opportunities, do you think, for... for uh tracking any of your patients against the people who don't get that kind of advice? Um, yeah, that's tricky, but it's something certainly that um, we're doing at Plant-Based Health Online. So what um, Laura and I have been able to do is, is start off a collaboration with Chartwell Cancer Charity, um, it's called Cancer, Chartwell Cancer Trust, actually. Um, and they're actually a local charity to Kings, but um, they offer their charitable work throughout the UK. Um, and they've um, uh, funded places for people recovering from cancer to join a lifestyle medicine group for recovery recovery after cancer because um, you know your listeners might not be aware but it's being um, it seems to be a really effective way of delivering lifestyle medicine is rather than the kind of one-to-one -one, um, approach is really to deliver lifestyle interventions in a group consultation and, and not just delivering um, in information but actually having a shared medical appointment with people who themselves are experiencing or have experienced the same conditions or same treatments so Laura's now run two um, group um, consultations for people recovering from cancer and, and we're slowly collecting um, you know feedback and, and information and just some sort of general biometrics on, on blood pressure and cholesterol and, and various blood tests as well um, so uh, you know as that grows um, then hopefully we'll be able to show some benefit for our patients I mean the feedback's been been great because I think you know people are looking for this really um, uh, specific well thought out and um, tailored information that's meaningful to them rather than the kind of generic approach and then being um, confused about what to do um so we're we're we're, we're just um, recruiting people for two new group consultations one for early stage prostate cancer and also for those recovering from colorectal cancer because you know not only are they um, two of the commonest cancers we see but there is a there are a lot of data now supporting a healthy lifestyle approach for surviving well after these two diagnoses and for prostate cancer it's even about trying to halt things in 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 their tracts um tract which people don't often get talk, uh, taught about so uh people who are listening to this podcast who are interested in what you've just said what do they do about it yeah, just come to our website and um, click on the join our group for prostate cancer or colorectal cancer. So our website at Plant Based Health Online is just plantbasedhealthonline.com or shortened to pbho.co.uk. But hopefully we put it in your show notes and people can click their way through or just send an, an email to info at um, Plant Based 
healthonline.com. Um, yeah, and we're recruiting people. Um, we're noticing that we're getting a lot more women than than men, as you oh, might right. imagine, with all these sort of approaches. So we'd love to get a group of men with early stage prostate cancer where we can make a real difference to them. Absolutely, yeah. Prostate cancer, there's so much potential. It seems there's far more approaches that actually can do what you said, which is actually just hold it back indefinitely uh, than any other cancer, it seems to me. It's one of the most, uh, the, the one with the greatest potential to help. Absolutely. And mm. um, how have you found the response after, is it a year or a year and a half since you've been working on that, um, on the Health Online Clinic? Um, it's January 21st, so not, not January quite January 21st, <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, you know, what have you, what have you found? What have you learned? And what has the response been? And have you seen any change? Um, yeah, so I mean, I think um, the pandemic was sort of a prime time to kind of launch um, something that was to do with health and well-being. And I think what spurred myself and Laura on to really make it happen and work on it during the pandemic time was because we, we soon noticed that people with underlying health conditions were doing worse with the infection. Um, and, uh, you know, we know that you can make some really meaningful changes to your health outcomes, like your, your body weight, your um, blood pressure, your cholesterol in a really short period of time. Um, and, and also um, the uh, way of consulting patients, you know, I moved to telephone and video consultations at work. Um, it seemed the right time to deliver that sort of lifestyle approach on an online platform. So that seemed to, to be um, a, a benefit because people, when we launched, people were quite used to thinking about seeing their GP or their dietitian or nutritionist um, via a video link. So, so, that, so that was useful. So, so we didn't have any sort of concerns from patients, oh, well, I need to see my doctor and patient uh, in person. So that was good I think one of the first things that happened was we had loads of inquiries and they still continue from practitioners who want to know whether we're hiring so that kind of just gives you an idea of mm -hmm. the fact that people um, are looking for a different way of practicing medicine I think we are all getting a little jaded with the you know the pills and procedures approach so so that was really interesting um, and then yeah the types of people coming through you know our virtual doors um, uh, you know it's a variety you know of course with saying plant-based in the title we're going to um, uh, be attracting people who are already going towards a plant-based diet mm -hmm. but um, I think we are also attracting omnivores um, and people who are concerned about how they live their lives on this planet so people who are looking to reduce their their meat, eggs and dairy consumption for planetary concerns, but also in order to regain their health in a way that, um, uh, you know, doesn't involve unnecessarily another medication or even come off their medications. Mm -hmm. and, and lots of family members pushing their, their parents or loved ones to book an appointment, you know, you've got to do it, you can do it sort of thing. So, um, yeah, really varied. Um, and yeah, the responses from, from patients has, has been really, really nice. Um, I guess there's always challenges. Um, you know, none of us have been taught how to um, run an organisation outside of anything in the NHS. So it's a steep learning curve. Um, and, and also, you know, the, the public aren't used to paying for consultations. Mm -hmm. So being in the private space at the moment brings its challenges. And we, we don't want to be catering to the healthy wealthy. We want to really be reaching those communities that need our help the most. And I guess the ultimate aim is to show efficacy and then be mm -hmm. able to tap into some 
NHS funding for things like cancer survival programs, which are so desperately needed, but, um, you know, to come at the bottom of the pecking order when it comes to di dishing out um, funding. It's such an important point to um, to open it up to as many people as possible for from wherever they are, isn't it? So having that in quality of access is so important. Exactly. And do, do you see carers and families and do you see, you know, patients coming maybe in pairs for 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 advice or support? Um, and not sort of well, not sort of in the one to one consultations, but that's what the group consultations mm -hmm. are all, all about. It's about um, having a shared medical appointment with other people who've also got those conditions, because we know that the, that kind of social support and learning from each other is so important if we are hoping that our patients are going to make sustainable lifestyle um, changes. Um, and yes, and then we provide resources that they can share with their family members, because none of us are going to be able to do this in isolation if we don't have the support of our loved ones. So that sort of piece about you know social relationships, mm -hmm. bringing your family on board is a very important part. Part of, of, of what we do. Surely. Mm. I, I'm wondering whether there's going to be scope uh, in, amongst um, uh, the uh, nowadays with this personal health budgets for people who've got continuing health problems and um, cancer is increasingly fitting into that uh, bracket as it becomes a long-term disease and not just killing people very quickly. Um, so uh, services like yours people could actually spend their health budget on it and uh, it'd be hard to uh, say it wasn't well spent if it's a completely uh, approved model being run by uh, medical staff it, it could hardly be said to be a sort of you know inappropriate choice yeah i do hope i do hope so i i hope that the people appreciate the value of what what we're offering because as you say it's about quality of life many of the cancers that i treat now as you say are very much chronic illness but with continuous use of various medications that have side effects that could be managed with with lifestyle approach and you know regular exercise sleep um you know all those sort of things are so important in in managing side effects mm -hmm. Do, do you liaise with the clinicians? Uh, let's say, you know, you've got a cancer patient that comes in with a standard hematological regime. Do you liaise with a consultant to discuss their needs and do you collaborate? How does it work? Yeah, well, uh, we, we have a, um, a platform um, that we use called HeyDoc, which is a sort of medical notes platform. And from there, we do share our notes. We ask permission, obviously, for the patient, from the patients to share their notes, specifically with their primary care physician, um, so they're, they're their GP. But um, also, if they are in active care and secondary care, we do um, you know, get, uh, ask them to get their contact details to, to email the, the letters. And certainly, we've had a bit of to and fro with mm -hmm. some um, oncologists and, and GPs for, for sure, but it's sort of a person dependent mm -hmm. as to whether they mm -hmm. want us to, to be liaising or, or not. Um, some oncologist doctors are not so open-minded about um, taking sure. on these additional sure. approaches. <laughs> mm, I'm interested in that because, of course, I, I've been speaking for years to nutritionists who say, oh yeah, I, every time, I, after every appointment, I send a letter to the oncologist, I never hear anything whatsoever and ever. You know, and, you know, it's just a process. They're going to keep doing it because they're hoping that one day it'll have some effect or it is having some sort of cumulative effect. But uh, does the, the fact it's coming from somebody like you make any difference? 
Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I do have to make it clear. I don't actually practice on that platform because I have a fairly <laughs> full time job or, already. So I'm co-founder, right. but I'm not offering my own appointments okay. outside of my NHS work. So you have um, Laura and Sue, our GPs and nutritionists and our dietitian, um, Lisa, uh, as well. So um, but, you know, they are very accomplished in their own rights. And I, I think, you know, um, yeah, I, I think, well, hopefully it has validity. I, I think the, the the most important message is when the patients go back to their doctors and hopefully relay in person the benefits that they've they've seen and hopefully spread the message like that true but it, it, do you feel that still in your case though it's largely a one-way dialogue that... oh yeah yeah absolutely there's no doubt there's no there's no back and forth emails of how things going kind of thing with other practitioners it's partly a a, a problem with our busyness the amount of mail email we receive it's just not feasible is it to, to be having those one-to-one interactions but i imagine the day that an oncologist actually realizes these people are helping them to do their job it might start changing but i don't think that has sunk in yet really yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, it's difficult. I think for my workplace, you know, you only see a dietitian or a physio or, you know, somebody that if you have a, a, a problem and usually it's problems of undernutrition, excessive weight loss and really kind of just managing through treatment. Um, you certainly can't see a dietitian in the outpatient very easily. It's very much for the inpatient service. So I think we do need to change that, really, that we have amazing allied health professionals, but they are employed to do a very specific kind of right. role within oncology and it's not this sort of holistic um, uh, approach and you know looking at the, the the patient's underlying chronic conditions as well as their cancer. Shirim mm-hmm. what um, what do you do differently in clinic how does all that knowledge um, and experience that you have now in lifestyle and plant-based nutrition helped you with your consultations? So I think um, I take, a, as, as you've said already, a sort of person-centred approach. Um, we, we all sort of know when people are ready to be talking about these things or, or not. So I sort of kind of think back to the, the teaching about, you know, behaviour change and who might be ready for a small bit of information, who's ready to actually make changes. So I, I try and judge that with the, with um, you know, my, my general conversations about the cancer and what have you. But invariably, everyone will ask, you know, what can I do? You know, is it something I did? Will my family be affected? What can I do? What can my family do? And and um, is there anything that will improve my chances? So most patients give you an in, um, and then I sort of try and. Um, find out about their own lifestyle so you know trying to incorporate um, lifestyle history into the consultation um, which is something I didn't used to do and you know people talk about diet as a vital sign you know we should be thinking about asking everyone about their diet and um, lifestyle so I usually try and think of um, uh, you know two or three appropriate sort of nutrition related questions that I think would be relevant for that individual Um, so you know how many portions of fruits and vegetables do you eat a day you know how many times um a day do you or a week do you incorporate beans um you know things things like that um do you do you can you cook from scratch or are you um you, you know reaching for for supermarket meals and then you know a brief history on on um uh, physical activity um and then just asking some general questions about their mood their sleep um obviously um tobacco smoking and alcohol is on a standard history anyway so that's always been asked um and try and assess out what their social 
social support is, you know, through their family history, but who's supporting them through this. And, and then, you know, I don't get an awful lot of time. Uh, they have to take in a lot of information about their chemotherapy, sign consent forms, you know, um, do all those sort of pre-chemo checks and things. So um, I try and, and give them or offer them some, you know, simple swaps or changes or things that they can incorporate in an immediate way without sort of being overwhelmed. Um, King's is quite varied in terms of who comes to see you. There's you know, the two extremes of, of the quite wealthy, but also migrant populations who are suffering from, you know, um, food insecurity and um, obviously job insecurity then becomes a problem as well when you've got a cancer diagnosis. So um, I try and tailor it. Um, you know, it's no good telling everyone to go and have a green smoothie when they probably don't even ha have access to a kitchen or a refrigerator or, or whatever. So it is a tailored approach. Um, and try and judge what the patient's sort of able and willing to receive but everyone sort of gets a snippet of some bit of advice of something that they can change and I then try and reinforce that in follow-up appointments I think the real time to talk to patients is at the end of treatment you know you're hoping to give them some good news that their scan is clear and we're going to a follow-up phase and then they everyone's sort of ready well what can I do and everyone wants to make their sort of physical symptoms a bit better the fatigue the kind of brain fog that you know the chemo brain that everyone talks about um, and and, and that's where I get a bit more time to talk about these lifestyle approaches. And how what, how is the multidisciplinary team around you responding to that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I do feel like I'm working a, a bit in a silo. Nobody's really got time to sort of engage in, in that side of, of things. Um, you know, I think things will start to change because there's been uh, quite a lot of emphasis on staff well-being and health during the pandemic with lots of sort of interventions for staff and I think as people realize for themselves how important all these things are that hopefully they'll be translating that to their care because we know from studies that physicians own behaviors really um, impact how they counsel their patients so maybe that will be a positive um, change you know we have a health and well-being mm -hmm. hub and people are asked to sort of think about active travel with reducing you know carbon emissions and stuff and I think you know slowly hopefully that will be embedded in the way we talk to our patients as well. Mm. Surely. Uh, it, interesting to hear you say that pretty much all of your patients ask what they can do to help themselves. That's a sign of the times that that concept is now embedded in the public. Because you know, ten years ago that wouldn't have been the case. It'd been the the few uh, sort of uh, difficult patients who'd be asking questions like that, and everybody else would just do what they were told. So um, it's a good thing because, uh, of course, the more that that question is posed. Uh, you know, the more it's likely to uh, at some time collide with something that, that uh, gives somebody the impression it might be a good idea if there were some answers for it. So, uh, yeah, that's hopeful. <laughs> In terms of nutrition, um, you know, going into more detail, if somebody comes to ask you, one of your patients, of, okay, and what shall I do or what shall I avoid, what would you say to them? Yeah, well, I try and avoid the word avoid. <laughs> and I talk about, you know, eating a diet um, that is centered around healthy plant foods. Nobody's surprised when I tell them that they should be emphasizing, you know, the colors of the rainbow and eating lots of fruits and vegetables. Um, but I talk about swapping out um, refined grains for whole grains. So, you know, the white rice for brown rice and sort of whole grain pastas rather than the white flour pastas. Um, and I talk about um, swapping um, meat 
wheat um, for more beans. So having a healthier source of protein, for example, um, and, um, you know, a portion of nuts and seeds. And, and those are the foundations of a healthy plant-based diet, um, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts and seeds. Um, and, you know, for me, reading the literature and, and knowing the, the data, they're the only foods that really have been associated with good health in all, all senses, um, prevention of all chronic illnesses, keeping you physically well and mentally well. What, what people choose to do around the edges mm -hmm. is absolutely up to them. Um, but I try and emphasize the foods that they should be adding in, which hopefully will crowd out um, the foods that they should be eating less of. I am very specific about red and processed meat. Um, my view is that there is no place um, for red and processed meat in the, in the diet, given the negative impacts on both health and um, the climate crisis. Um, so I think that is something I'm much more clear on now. Um, and I also tell them that um, it's best to avoid alcohol or limit as much as possible because it is a group one carcinogen. It adversely affects the gut microbiome. Um, you know, it stops us having good restorative sleep. It can contribute to stress and anxiety. So I, I am much more certain on, on, on that than my colleagues who stick with the kind of government guidelines. Um, and, you know, it, 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 on the surface, it sounds like a, a restrictive diet, but I try and emphasize the variety um, because we know that the key to um, good health on a plant-based diet is the variety. Um, you know, most of us stick to six or eight sort of simple food types a, a week, but we should be trying to expand our range of fruits and vegetables and, and, and plant foods and plant sources of protein to, you know, 30 different types a week, you know, for good gut health. So um, I try and stress that and, and incorporating herbs and spices, which for, for me comes second nature being from a South Asian family. Um, but it, it's the key to making um, plant-based nutrition um, tasty and and, um, you know, desirable. And, um, mm -hmm. and and that's what people are ultimately looking for um, mm -hmm. as well. So that, that's kind of how I, I talk to people uh, about. So making healthy swaps. Um, I, I also talk about sort of um, incorporating soya in the diet, because I mm -hmm. think people certainly, I don't think the British public anyway, really um, are, are used to eating much soya. But I think, you know, having tofu and tempeh and edamame and things are really good ways of getting healthy sources of protein and healthy fats. Um, and, you know, if people are looking to swap out their dairy then I, I talk about um, choosing soya milk as a good alternative for all the health benefits that we know it brings mm -hmm. okay so uh, could we go on to talk a little bit about science uh, I I think you know an enormously important uh, aspect of the kind of growth of the credibility of nutritional medicine is because the science has grown so vastly it's like mushroomed in the last 10 years and um that yeah i think that's driven a lot of the credibility and it means that it's being talked about much more seriously much more publicly even if it hasn't made it into the oncology wards yet uh, it, it feels like eventually it will if only because of that and uh, is is the uh, the growth uh, you know the expansion of the science something you're involved in yourself um, well, I'm sort of involved in um, delivering um, the content as in terms of education. I'm not creating the, the new science myself, but I am involved in keeping myself very up to date. Um, I write a weekly blog on the um, plant-based nutrition news, um, and I incorporate that in a very up-to-date course at Winchester University. So keeping up with the science is certainly um, part of my my kind of what I feel is my my role and job in, in what I do. So uh, that's very much part of it. But I 
have to say, I don't think the basics and the fundamentals have changed <laughs> dramatically over the last few decades. We've just got more, um, we've just strengthened the evidence for yeah. what um, makes a healthy um, diet. And we've, we've got all sorts of studies from, you know, um, looking at um, how the longest and healthiest lived um, humans on this planet live and what sort of diet and lifestyle they have. And they eat a predominantly plant-based diet, not 100%. Some of them do, but not all. Um, and, you know, those are people who live in the blue zones um, and, you know, they're eating predominantly um, minimally processed plant foods and beans as their main source of protein. And that's sort of what makes their diet stand out. Um, and then we've got large prospective cohort studies that have followed people for decades and looked at lifestyle factors that have predicted um, for the development of certain conditions such as cancer, cardiovascular disease, the sort of two top killers. And really the science is clear. It's, it's the combination of a healthy diet pattern um, as, uh, you know, encompassing all the variety of healthy plant foods that seems to predict um, a longevity, quality of life uh, and minimizing chronic um, illness. And then we've had a few randomized studies. So uh, you know, the one that you mentioned, um, the, the topic of prostate cancer, I think is so fascinating because one of the first studies of sort of lifestyle interventions in oncology that I became aware of was Dr. Dean Ornish's sort of um, lifestyle approach um, to early stages of prostate cancer, where he put, um, he randomized 93 men to either a plant-based diet with exercise, stopping smoking and stress management and compared them to a control group. Um, and after a year, the intervention group, the lifestyle lifestyle group actually had a decrease in their prostate specific antigen level, whereas the um, control group current on has seeing a rise. And after two years, about a quarter of the control group had to have surgery or radiotherapy, whereas only 5% of the um, lifestyle group had to go on and have um, conventional treatment. So that was really quite uh, astounding. And he was also able to show in the laboratory that this sort of lifestyle approach um, uh, not only has sort of clinical benefit, but it's having a, a benefit at a molecular level. You know, you can change the expression of oncogenes um, and you can even lengthen the caps of your chromosomes, the telomeres. So there's some really quite, um, you know, fundamental data supporting um, a plant predominant or plant-based diet plus other lifestyle interventions. Um, and just the other week in JAMA, actually, there was a small study of 52 people with prostate, early stage prostate cancer who was who were put on a sort of HIT, so um, a high intensity training program and, and compared to a group that didn't. And just with the exercise, just the exercise alone was able to stabilize their prostate specific antigen levels. So it really is quite remarkable what has been achieved and what we should be translating into clinical practice. Yeah. Such a powerful. It's uh, nonetheless, of course, it's frustrating that when that kind of thing's happening, I mean, and also, of course, you look in other countries at what's happening. I mean, the exercise thing has been picked up in Australia big time, isn't it? But uh, is it having much impact here yet? Well, no, not really. Um, is It should be a number one recommendation by every oncologist for almost every cancer. Isn't that true? It's cheap, it's effective, and it has no side effects other than good ones. But there's, there's, we're a long way from that. So, uh, you know, that is a source of frustration. But uh, any thoughts on breaking down those barriers? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we need a whole system approach. You know, if I kind of think of where I was sort of, um, you know, eight years ago and and comparing myself to then what my colleagues will be still in that zone, I think we're just, you know, there's so many levels. I think, you know, on a, on a societal level, we have to do better at our public health messaging. There was a study, a survey conducted, I think it was about a year and a half ago by the World Cancer Research Fund for UK residents, you know, just asking them questions about what they knew about the cause of cancer and less than 50% of people knew that eating fruits and vegetables and regular physical activity actually um, reduced your risk of cancer. So I think we've got a big piece on public health um, messaging and we know that prevention, only about 5% of the NHS budget, 5% of the 200 billion or whatever is spent, is actually spent on prevention, which includes this public health. And I'm a bit worried that public health England have now been disbanded. I, I, I do worry who is actually in charge of um, you know, supporting us through public health interventions. Um, but nonetheless, so I, I think that's a big piece um, but also, I think we need to make these lifestyle choices, which are not always choices, um, accessible. So not everyone has access to green spaces or can afford a bicycle or, um, you know, can avoid the car fumes or um, are able to afford um, enough fruits and vegetables for the family because we know calorie for calorie it's much cheaper to buy your ultra processed packaged food than it is to buy fresh fruits and vegetables that, that will spoil or, or or what have you or that need cooking you know some people are going to have two jobs and not even have the time to 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 cook so I think you know we need we need to make this accessible and we need to we need to produce the food that we expect our citizens to eat and we're not even doing that you know we barely produce um, 20 to 30 percent of the fruits and vegetables that we need to feed the UK public everything else is imported um, the National Food Review said that if we were all to start eating seven portions of fruits and vegetables like we should be then we need to increase our, our, our sort of uh, you know ability to buy fruits and vegetables by about 30 percent you know we'd need that much extra and it's no wonder that only 28 percent of the UK adult population are actually eating five portions of fruits and vegetables so I think there's that system approach and then, of course, there's the education piece for health professionals. Um, and that is coming along. I was really excited to um, see the launch of the medical nutrition curriculum for medical students um, that launched just a couple of weeks ago. I mean, it's been three years in the making. I don't know how you spend three years, <laughs> but uh, there is a curriculum and there are set competencies now that medical um, students will will need to acquire but you know we know that just writing a document doesn't mean that it's actually going to be implemented and that implementation may take another several years and then it's also embedding it in clinical practice I think you know even if you learn it at medical school the moment you step on the medical wards A&E it's gone out the window you know you're firefighting and that's how your initial two three years it is the training is in the hospital predominantly um, and you know your own well-being deteriorates and then I think it becomes less of a focus for your patients as well. It's a good starting point though, isn't it? Starting from the undergraduates um, yeah. from the beginning of medical school yeah. and to be able to embed those principles because that will bring more research, I guess, isn't it? And you have done research on, on nutrition, I believe. 
Delphine. Yeah, well, <laughs> hematological <laughs> disorders. So, you know, that's quite amazing, quite unique. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, well, it takes me back to sort of back to 2007 now when I started my PhD. And to be honest, it, it is a little bit of a coincidence that I did do my PhD in, in a nutritional field. Um, so I joined a cancer pharmacology group at um, Bart's Cancer Centre um, that had an interest in the role of supranutritional selenium um, for sensitizing cancer cells um, and potentially to then use that sort of high doses of selenium as a way of enhancing the efficacy of um, chemotherapy for people with can uh, with lymphoma. Um, so there was already a group in, in the US that had shown some really great data in colorectal cancer and they were starting a study in patients with um, colorectal cancer to, to add selenium at, at a high dose. So um, I did quite a lot of the um, sort of laboratory experiments on human cell lines, looking at interactions between chemotherapy and selenium and um, the kind of mechanisms at, at play. Um, and um, but it was it was interesting because at the same time, during my PhD, there was a large um, uh, chemo prevention study going on, I think probably run out of the, the US called the SELECT trial that was putting people with early stages of prostate cancer on a combination of selenium and vitamin E. And that halted early during my PhD um, because it showed that people taking the selenium supplements had a trend to increased risk of type 2 diabetes. And actually the vitamin E group had an increased risk of prostate cancer. And that sort of changed my view on this sort of, you know, supplement uh, mm -hmm. approach to sort of taking the nutrient out of food, because you, you can look back um, over previous studies, you know, like um, beta carotene supplements, increasing the risk of lung cancer in smokers, um, for example. So we've never really been able to sort of really successfully harness these high doses. Um, nonetheless, you know, I had some really encouraging laboratory data that we had really wanted to translate into a clinical trial, but because selenium is made by a, a nutraceutical company, it just wasn't possible to get a clinical trial off the ground. We got funding from Cancer Research UK, but um, getting all the indemnity and, and procedures that the company would have to, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, adhere to was just not within their capability. So despite all our efforts, um, we never got it into clinical practice but I think my interests have um, changed since then um, but having said that I learned an awful lot about um, you know science interpreting data reading papers and things that I'm now able to sort of bring to the education programs that I run. I was wondering whether that experience has sparked what you what you're actually doing now. Yeah, well, to, to an extent, but there was a time lag, you know, I was much more concerned about getting my consultant job and, you know, where was I going to live and all those. And then then it was really my personal decision to adopt the, the plant-based diet that kind of led me down this, this other path. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I find a lot of nutritionists these days seem to have moved in the direction of kind of food first, supplements maybe you know in, uh, they may be necessary but they're not the primary route for a lot of people these days because yeah a, a thing that's quite often synthetic and a single substance like that doesn't seem to work and be as nearly as effective as uh, the the synergy that's involved in plants with uh, a vast number of of these all mixed together and, and working together yeah i completely agree <laughs> mm. Yeah. What do you think the future holds, Siren, in terms of me as clinician, as an oncologist, you as a hematologist, the community is growing 
what do you think should be the next step to be able to you know to incorporate those approaches in an, in the nhs yeah that's a big question and i suspect i haven't got all the answers but i almost think that we need some sort of subspecialty amongst oncologists where we actually practice preventative oncology you know you get preventative cardiologists you get people you know trying to reverse type 2 diabetes I sort of think that there needs to be a a side um, sort of training aspect of preventative oncology and certainly then um, you know emphasis on survivorship um, something that I doubt you or I really had much focus on in our training Um, and I think the likes of you and me have to come together and make that happen really because it is pressure from um, you know the people on the front line I mean we've seen that with the medical students who wanted nutrition education in medical schools and they've made it happen I, I don't think that the Royal Colleges are going to suddenly come up with a new curriculum unless it's actually, um, you know, pressured from people like our, ourselves. And so, you know, coming together in, you know, your integrative uh, oncology societies, the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, and really having a voice that's unified about where we feel medicine should be going. And, you know, the, the good thing is that it's the same approach for, for all Um, aspects of our health isn't it so really we should be coming together as a wider community and and somehow being able to change the focus of healthcare from you know rather than being sick care it actually focuses on health and well-being and teaches people you know from cradle to grave how to live well Um, and then of course along the way people are going to have health concerns that are going to need our our everyday um, allopathic kind of treatments but you know people have to take back control of their own health and we need to support them to to do that. So I suspect we're going to have to join forces and just um, shout much more loudly for for this to to actually happen. That's a very interesting idea. Nobody's ever said that to me before, the idea of having a specialism within uh, oncology. Um, Usually the talk is about opening oncology up to the idea of interacting with specialists outside who have the the necessary skills but actually some specialisms within the NHS would change things it would suddenly the whole uh, concept would gain some respect wouldn't it if there was an actual uh, a discipline for it I think it's a fabulous idea preventative oncology (laughs) is absolutely a fabulous idea well let's do it we can prevent four out of ten cancers we should be concentrating on that 40 percent and we concentrate on the you know uh, the the things that we we can't really change uh, ultimately um but the the other i don't take credit for the idea i think the idea really came um in in into my head really from talking to colleagues in lithuania so lithuania apparently is the only country that really have recognized lifestyle medicine as a unique specialty so various teams like card cardiology and diabetes have a lifestyle medicine physician embedded in their MDT and then actually have a a role to provide that for patients and you kind of need that emphasis um, for for us really. How amazing is that? We've got some stuff to learn there obviously. Uh, We do. You you know anybody who's got good English we could have on this podcast? (laughs) Oh yeah yeah you can have the lead of the lifestyle medicine masters from I will introduce you no problem. (laughs) We'll do that. Uh, really interesting concept, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's interesting for the idea of it coming from people who are actually in oncology because the fact is that we were looking a lot to, say, the cancer charities 
to come up with research into lifestyle medicine. Are they doing it? Well, they're not. Are they doing research into prevention? No, it's right down the bottom of the agenda, uh, just as it is with the NHS everywhere. There is no emphasis on prevention, whereas it's potentially the biggest weapon we have in the fight against cancer. And uh, to take us right back to the beginning of the conversation, you were talking about your colleagues' focus on the future, effectively. You know, this concept here that I'm really fascinated with is going to help patients immensely in the future. And that is all very well. As you say, we need that. But if it's at the expense of what we could already be doing now for patients who are suffering right now, then there's something inherently wrong. But but it is the system that's topsy-turvy because it's how... Um, you know, the medical profession and science view us as individuals, you know, and what the what the medical um, research organizations want to fund and what pharmaceutical companies want to bring into clinical practice. So, and, and then what gives you kudos is publishing papers and the journals want to publish about novel things. You know, nobody wants to publish about, you know, a group of people who ate lots of fruits and vegetables and felt better. Right. So it, it's all about kind of, um, you know, to some level we are quite selfish and to advance our career, you're expected to do certain things which then conform to our conventional way of practicing and researching medicine which unfortunately is driven by an agenda that's not always about the individual's health and well-being it's about the next drug the the money the investment I can't start a clinical trial just you know saying let's let's eat lots more fruits and vegetables and exercise and see what happens to your outcomes from lymphoma because the people that are funding these studies are pharmaceutical industry and you are beholden to them wanting to give you their drug for free in order to fund the whole study um so you know until as a society we feel it's important enough to to provide the funding from public um you know domains we're just going to be beholden to those that ultimately make money out of the um research data basically mm. but uh coming back to your idea though if you actually could start to create a movement towards a new discipline you actually produce a whole new focus for research for the government to look at what's going on here this looks good it's rather in line with what we've been saying in government for years uh, you know, it, it could create quite a stir, in fact. And of course, you will definitely have the public being interested. I, I agree. I think the public are hugely interested to know how they prevent or reduce their chance of cancer. You know, one in two of us born out after 1960 are going to develop a cancer. And the government should also be interested, given the amount of resources that goes into to, to cancer care, for, for sure. Mm, nice. It's your systematic data collection, though. Because the trial is a very artificial environment as well, mm -hmm. isn't it? And it's a very, very highly selective group. If you think about the number of people who come through your clinic or your health online clinic um, and, and you observe all these people moving forward, how powerful is that? And then if we team up oncologists, hematologists, primary care in your case with your colleagues, how powerful would that be? I, I think it's an opportunity for sure. I, I think we need to just be getting this information out there more publicly and, and having our patients be advocates. I think that's a you know really powerful message too. Mm. Okay, well, I think we'll wrap it up there. That's a really uh, uh, exciting little discussion towards the end there with a bit of uh, blue sky thinking going on, um, <laughs> which I love. Uh, we've got to think about where to go with this because you know we are dealing with an, uh, what you call an intractable situation 
of things not really changing anything like as fast as they should, given the science. So uh, huge thanks to you, Shireen, coming on and talking to us today. Really been interesting. Very fascinating. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. <laughs> Definitely. Bye, Bob. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Cancer Talk. Do subscribe and look out for the next edition of our podcast. And if you have friends and colleagues interested in the development of UK cancer care, do pass on the details of Cancer Talk. Goodbye.